Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Coaches Corner University Podcast. I am your host, Paul Oneid, and today I'm joined by a good friend of mine, uh, another nerd, bodybuilder, head coach, team owner of Team Gloff, Nick Gloff. What's up, man? Hello, how are you? I'm good, man. I feel like every time we chat, I'm adding something new to your title. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you make me sound better every time. I'm getting better at this. I'm, and next, I'll just be like, Dr. Nick Gloff. And no one's going to question it because like just my mom listens to the podcast. So <laughs> there you well, go. Hello and good day to Mrs. O'Neill. Yeah, Susan, Susan, very, uh, very enthusiastic listener. Um, so the reason I wanted to have you on, man, is you are doing some really cool things. And number one, I wanted to learn about them. So why not do it on a podcast? And number two, I love when people dive into something that number one lights their fire and number two, they find a way to share their passion with others. And, you know, you could say that, you know, similar to art, right? You find something that really lights your fire and then you put it out into the world. Uh, You became known for very tedious exercise execution and very nuanced explanations of movement and you put that it together into a product. So maybe you could tell everyone kind of what you've been up to lately and how that's come about. Well, for as of where things have been recently, the, the biggest thing in that realm has been launching my exercise library as a utility to anybody that wants to use it. So one of the biggest things over the years since I started into the fitness space, which do I still have you? Yeah, you still have me. You're just a bit cutting in and out. Okay. Well, uh, why don't we give it a pause a second? I'll see yep. if I can. So since you got right. the fitness so, space. <laughs> yeah. So slight technical difficulties. Uh, everyone at home, my Wi-Fi decides to not work selectively whenever I get on calls. So <laughs> we're on a hotspot, so it should be okay, but we'll find out. Um, but the most recent thing is... I've launched my exercise library, which the biggest thing that I've done since getting into the fitness space, which again, I'll reiterate, it's really the only space I've ever been in for really my entire life. It's the thing that I've dedicated myself to. Um, Since the very beginning, I just kind of always took a very, well, systems approach to everything. And the systems approach being every single detail has a specific reason for why it functions the way it does. And the way that my brain has always worked with things I don't understand things at all unless I can dissect the entire system in which it functions and then be able to reconnect all the pieces back again. Once I can do that, I can say, I understand what I'm doing. You're that and kid so since the part of the toaster. Yes. Yes. Okay. And until then, it's just a magical thing that I don't know how it works. <laughs> so, and since I dedicated to doing this, I couldn't, go through the rest of my life dedicating myself to fitness and bodybuilding and all the rest of this while thinking it's a magical thing that just does stuff when you decide to do a specific thing so it's just using the toaster analogy until i broke apart the toaster to figure out how it worked it just magically spits out toast just like bodybuilding magically spits out great physiques i couldn't do that <laughs> the tremendous so, energy it's great. Thank you to you for giving me the toaster analogy. So, but since that's the way that my brain has always worked, that's kind of the content that I had always put out since the very beginning. It's either I've been dissecting like the mental emotional side, dissecting specifically the way that programming is done, dissecting the way that we think about programming, the way that we execute specific movements, the reason why we do so, how it stacks all together, like every detail that I could possibly ever dive into. I've dove into to at least a degree that it's going to be useful. I've gone a little bit off the deep end on a handful of things, obviously, but that's kind of the process of getting, yeah, it's the process of getting to, to where your understanding is good enough that you can discard the extra stuff and leave yourself with what actually matters. But all of the content I've ever put out has been down that way. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is like one thing that I actually admire about you in that regard is that like we all have a tendency when we learn something to just run full speed with that thing. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that leads us astray. 
I mean, I've been, I'm third, I'll be 36. So I've been led astray many times, but you always come back. I feel like throughout your journey within this, you've never really stood on a soapbox and said right or wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I, I will say, uh, I do still agree with you because the things that I've stood up and said right or wrong are pretty much like absolute basics of the generalities that we can say are actually true. Okay. That's it's like when we get led totally off, off the path, it's just like absolute randomness. This is how things work. Cause there's a lot of proclamations from a lot of other people that mm-hmm. decide to stand on a hill. That's built out of Tinder rather than actually being a hill. Right. And so really easy to set fire to those hills. And so I've just decided that if I'm going to stand on one, it better be one that I'm willing to die on. And up to now, I, I would agree with you, is that any hill that I've decided to stand on, I'd be willing to die on. Because they're just, I can defend them as far as I ever needed to, because I never stood on something that I didn't believe. Because I never spoke too soon to make my conclusions be, you know, the first thing that I've come to is the conclusion and then everything else is just how I'm going to bolster that conclusion. It's always been getting the information first, breaking everything apart, putting it together so that I can understand the position before I make a conclusion on it. Well, you, in that, in that way, you immediately eliminate the possibility of confirmation bias. Cause if you're going to, if you're going to take things apart and figure out how they work, you're going to get down to the nuts and bolts. And at that point, if you can't rebuild it, there's no confirmation there. Yep. Yep. So I've tried my best to stay in that realm and just do it that way. It's safer. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I just never take stances on anything. I'm like Switzerland. Wow. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you have an exercise library. Yes. So uh, down the way I was, I was thinking is that all the content I've ever put out has been very detailed, very specific things. And a lot of the stuff that I'm known for is specifics on how to do everything on the gym floor. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm known for. And that's really kind of what my entire business rests on is the fact that I can put together very good programming for whoever is needing it for whatever level they're at and their needs are mm-hmm. and being able to apply it in a way that's unique and accurate. So it actually gets the result that it's intended to. And I couldn't do any of that if I didn't have the eye for and be able to deconstruct and reconstruct everything that happens actually on the gym floor. Right. And if that's really what my biggest utility is in the space, one of the things I've been asked for over and over and over and over again by clients and by people that just follow me is how can I get all of this information that you put out for free that I can have it like all at my fingertips at any one time. That's, you know, as, as somebody in business, the mm-hmm. way that you expand on business is you take the things that people tell you they need and you fill that need. 100%. And that's been pretty much the calling that I've been given for the last five years is that having that information readily available and easy to access is the most, most, most utility I could give. For sure. I mean, that's the basis of any successful business. You identify a gap in the market, you fill a gap with the best possible product, you place it, price it in a reasonable range to, you know, discourage people from just floating by and then boom, you have a success. How many, how many movements in the library right now? Cause I'm assuming it's going to be something that continues to be iterated upon. Yep. There's going to be more that gets added to it. I'll say that it's a little bit sparse on like ab work. It's a little bit light on, there's a couple of other accessory things. And then obviously with being able to get into some other gym settings rather than just revive gym for most of the filming, there's some other movements that other, other people have access to that I wouldn't. And I didn't for the filming of a lot of stuff that I have. So expanding off into even more specifics on pieces of equipment that I don't currently have available is something that will happen in the future. And then actually I did all the filming of it before revive actually flooded the entire gym floor with like double the equipment. So I saw that that's a really cool expansion. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I know for a fact that they're not done. There's more leg stuff that's going in there, probably going to knock out more walls and put in more stuff. So there's, yeah, there's going to be more just from that alone that I'm going to have to video so that I have that as, you know, somebody that travels to revive of which there are many, <laughs> 
right. that would want to see how to do any of the, any of the things that are specifically in there. And then these pieces of equipment too, thanks to uh, Dorian mm-hmm. up there, white North is kind of expanding his, his octopus of global control. <laughs> so he's got his hands in every major gym. Yeah. It seems so his, his equipment and the things that are usually seen in the gyms that he handles are popping up in a lot more places. So we're not seeing quite as much of just the typical, like everyone's got the hammer strength or everyone's got this one, like the new line of light, uh, life fitness stuff. That's honestly completely trash, but every new gym decides is great because it looks all fancy and fun. Like it's futuristic or something. Um, but a lot of these things that weren't seen very much and are a little bit newer old, or old designs that have recently lost their patent protection that are now getting pumped out into new in gyms again and so there's just by that alone there's going to be more stuff that i could put into library to expand into um and then obviously when i come up with new crazy ideas i'll have to document them and put them out there because as soon as i put up one of my crazy ideas on instagram the first thing i hear is how am i supposed to do that like uh, i'll I don't have 10 minutes that you're going to have an attention span for on my Instagram stories. So I'll just put that on the library. But uh, to answer your question directly, there's about 200 videos in there right now. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. really robust. Yeah. Yeah. And so are you planning to include like, obviously like dumbbell variations, barbell variations, all of that stuff in there as well? Oh yeah. That's all in there already. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Yep. Um, so for anyone who's made it this far, Coach's Corner University is going to be partnering with Team Gloff. We're going to be offering um, the Team Gloff exercise library through CCU, which I'm very excited about. And this kind of plays into the next topic of conversation is I really wanted to chat with you about hypertrophy training because, you know, I've had, uh, I had Ben on, I had Ethan on, I've had, uh, Actually, it's probably the the realm of bodybuilders uh, that I've or bodybuilding that I've had on. They both work together. They both uh, train together. Very similar viewpoints, and I I love the different perspectives that can actually kind of branch out of the same same vein almost. Whereas both of you are very focused on exercise execution. Um, programming principles and and specificity there with regards to the athlete's needs and kind of what you're trying to get out of the movement. Where I think the divergence lies is in the high output athlete. And this is something that I have had a very hard time dialing in for myself coming from powerlifting, being very good at integration of muscles within movements and now try and create a setup of a movement that allows me to isolate a certain muscle. And it's, it's been challenging and I I find myself getting more and more skilled at it, but a lot of the things that I have to do in order to nerf my output and the average trainee is not going to have to do. So when you can dive in a little bit into that concept and how that applies to you Uh, for people who don't know, Nick is one of the strongest people I know, although he has never competed in powerlifting, which kind of hurts my heart because I think he'd be pretty fucking good at it. maybe someday but yeah maybe someday um yeah so high really high performing athletes that have a lot of strength potential mm-hmm. are definitely an x factor athlete when you bring them into hypertrophy training it changes the game quite a bit and you've noticed that for yourself you could you could not hope to do the kind of output long term that you're capable of in a single day and continue to get result from it you would destroy yourself well, not only my joints, but like my fatigue level just goes through the roof. Yeah. You last about a week of your programming if you're trying to treat it as okay. a normal hypertrophy athlete would that doesn't uh, have your output potential, that doesn't have the skill to utilize the kind of kind of output that you're able to produce. Mm-hmm. People don't usually gain that skill easily and people don't usually ever get it. And one of the things that I see, especially now is my roster of athletes has expanded and moved up the ranks further and further. Okay. I see actually that there's very directly a, a non-correlation between the people's size and their strength because of this factor. Okay. 
because okay. of that integrative function. Yeah. Because of that integrative function that you understand for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I just saw you put up what yesterday or earlier this week, you deadlifting six plates Yeah, for a good view. And it looking like it was pretty much air on a day that you were supposed to be deloading anyway. It's a good day. It's a good day for the old yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great day. <laughs> it's a fantastic day. But to think if I were to have some of the biggest guys that I know with the most development, try to do that, that would be like an impossible ask. Right. Could not have them deadlift six plates. And if they can do it, that's going to be the thing that saps the life out of them for the next week because they just cannot sustain that. Plus Mm. everything else that they would do. Even though a lot of them can be quite strong, it's very selective. Yeah. I I mean, there are obviously the outliers that you can point to the Ian Valliers, the, you know, even Joe Seaman trains at our gym. He's a fucking monster, but they're few and far between. I feel. Yep. Yep. They're very few and far between. And a lot of the athletes that do have a lot of tissue, I find because I am specifically geared into like programming specific to the person and watching how their execution of everything lines up, man, people that have the most muscular potential, seem to have the least ability to produce strength. That's a really broad statement or, or yeah. bold statement to make. But yeah. I don't disagree with you at all. And uh, it's funny because I'm actually working on a lecture right now for Coach's Corner U titled, Does Hypertrophy Lead to Strength? And unequivocally, I can say that it does not. Yeah. Especially in isolation. In isolation. Comparing on single individual bases, it's, it's progression by percentages and the progression by percentages within the parameters of hypertrophy training, then yes, strength is going to lead to hypertrophy and hypertrophy will lead to strength. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy as it moves. One goes up, the other follows. Ah, you ruined my thesis for the whole lecture. (laughs) Now just cut this out. (laughs) I'll cut it. Take the quote directly and I won't know the wiser. (laughs) So. So what are some strategies that you might use, say, for your normal run-of-the-mill bodybuilder who is obviously still building tissue and rolling up the ranks versus that X-factor high-output individual? Like, how would their programs vary on the broad, on broad, broad strokes? So the first thing that I would do is test both of them at a very similar base to okay. see where their actual skill is. Because that's the biggest thing that I see the difference in is that, like I said before, the people that have the highest potential to grow Mm -hmm. typically are not very strong. They're strong relative to how much actual tissue they have because they necessarily would have more strength having more tissue and having trained it up to that point over all that time. Like we said, the N of one scenario, as they continue to get bigger, they got a little bit stronger. They got a little bit stronger. They got a little bit bigger. It feeds itself. But that's still within their own isolated system of that singular person. Right. So everyone pretty much starting at a similar base where I would start anyone's program looking at their needs analysis of what they can actually do based off of their history. Mm-hmm. And that that's injury history and all the rest of their limitations. And then what they actually need to build on for their specific physique. That's always the basis, but I'm always going to keep them and air them on the side of you're a beginner now because you're working with me. And that's because I approach it that way. People are going to start at a fairly low base relative to what they're usually used to, especially if they've only ever been purely in the hypertrophy realm. And if they've been down the more traditional bodybuilding route where bodybuilding programming is, I mean, the old school way, it's like three, four sets of everything. And you just smash yourself to hell with volume on everything that you can think of. So since that's pretty much the preset and it doesn't matter how advanced you are, that's pretty much kind of where people start from and they continue that for as long as it serves them, bring them back down to absolute base, give them what would be perceived as more maintenance level volumes for everything and break down whatever patterns they have to base skills, give them one or two of a singular pattern that you can build upon and see where their skill levels are at. And if I can see that they're horribly inefficient doing anything, then that's the biggest place that we can make progressions. And it doesn't matter how big or small they are. It depends on how skilled they are in the movements. That's the equalizer. I like that. I found, I found for me, 
the most challenging piece was orienting my body in the equipment to mm-hmm. actually be able to do what I need to do. And I mean, we've met in person, so you know how big I am. I'm not crazy big by any means. I think, oh, I was in prep when I saw you. So I was like 10 pounds lighter than I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, for example, like a lat bias row to try and do that bilateral in most machines is just not possible. And I just compensate it's upper back all day. And I think for me, that's been the biggest attribute to skill development is to actually put myself in positions where I don't necessarily have to think about anything skillfully because I'm already in a position to execute. Yep. Yep. And then it's just nuances added on top of that base. That's easy and thoughtless. That's that's the difference. Cause there's, there's a ton of, I mean, I'll, I'll speak to that too, is that a lot of the stuff that I do is I'll give base patterns that I know based off of general practice, most people can line up to be able to do without much thought. They need a little bit of direction on how their setup should be or what kind of equipment they should be utilizing. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's pretty much self-explanatory aside from a couple of things that are specific to how they should be doing. And then on top of that, you add the specifics into other things. So if I'm going to look at most dudes, large dudes specifically, mm-hmm. almost every single piece of rowing equipment, you're going to have a hard time hitting lats bilaterally. Yes. Yeah. Specifically. It's going to be a hard time for you to isolate them. You're still going to hit your lats on every single rowing movement you do. That's just unnecessary. So any any of the nerds that are going to pop in here, because I've only had this argument a million times, but you can't isolate anything in your back. Like, I know. I know. Just hold on. <laughs> you can bias. You can bias. You can actually do that. That's possible. Right. It's easier for you to bias those things when you're not limited by the structure of the machine and the path that it forces you to travel in. And so on things like that, where lats are gonna be hard for you to hit bilaterally, set it up unilateral. Make sure that that's a standard for most of the work that's done for it, at least until you've demonstrated the fact that you can get away from pre-created biases. Where for you, you being a power lifter too, Mm -hmm. your bias is I'm strong as fuck when I do this shit up here and I pull my arms up out here and I can use everything. So I'm going to use my traps because my traps are used to pulling seven plates off the ground. So they're going to be fine pulling 120 pounds out in front of my face. That's fine. That's real easy. And then your lats are pretty good at just not doing anything other than holding your spine in place. My lats are really good at keeping my arms beside my body. Yes. It's really good. (laughs) Yeah. They're really good at that, but they're not really good at lengthening and shortening and doing all that work. You know what, actually, funny you say lengthening, because I have noticed probably the best improvement in my overhead mobility just by training my lats in a lengthened position. And I'm not even saying training them overhead, because I still Mm -hmm. can't like like actively contract my lats in an overhead position. But even on these like higher angled pulls, having motor control in that range, I can actually put my hands over my head now. Yeah. It's funny how mobility and and training can actually be done simultaneously, right? Yeah. And it's almost like those crazy power lifters from about 30, 40 years ago that did all that dynamic work. Yeah. Might have had some sort of an idea. (laughs) Yeah. All that accessory stuff might have been worthwhile. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I I've I've witnessed the pendulum swing, right? So it's been there was like Louie and Westside where it was like 20% barbell work, 80% assistance. Then over the last few years, probably until maybe a couple of years ago, there was a massive swing towards more Eastern European, Bulgarian style lifting where your exercise library is maybe eight lifts and you just yep. push those as hard as you can. Internal stability, very skill focused. And then now the pendulum is slowly starting to shift the other way, realizing that there's only so much skill acquisition that you can get with a barbell lift. There's only so good you can get at squatting or deadlifting or bench press. And at some point you're going to have to build your structure. And that comes from the, this dedicated hypertrophy work. And there's so many fringe benefits of this hypertrophy work, whether it be, you know, access to end ranges that you just can't get with a barbell movement, um, or just offloading some fatigue that you might've accumulated with a barbell variation to a machine, allowing you to accumulate higher training volumes and 
eventually lead that into um, progressions on your main lifts. Do you do you have the opportunity to work with many barbell athletes, or is it primarily power, uh, bodybuilders that you work with? Just bodybuilders, really. Yeah. How many of them would you say you squat, deadlift, and bench press? Uh, none of them do bench press. Not surprising. Bench is stupid. Yeah, none of them do that. Is uh, whenever they come to me already benching, that's one of the first conversations I have. Is you're never doing that again. <laughs> so I'm not watching a pec tear on my watch for no good reason. It's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but pretty much all of them, and I don't do really conventional deadlifts unless the athlete is already pretty good and they can handle it and they need a little bit more glute and back than they do hamstrings. Okay, fair. Then I will put in a conventional, but otherwise it's usually just more of a stiff leg hinge or an RDL type deal and then squats so long as the individual has the shoulder mobility to do it and it doesn't affect them negatively on their pressing because that's the biggest issue that i tend to see yeah me too because i don't i don't have a problem with the internal stabilization factor which is kind of the kind of an issue that most people that program in bodybuilding go against they're like well you're gonna have lesser outputs like bullshit you're going to have lesser output. You only have lesser output on an internally stabilized movement because you haven't put in the time to build the skill or the strength to hold a brace properly so that you're not limited by how weak your central body is, which is something that can be fixed. It can be fixed and it's not permanent. One of the pet peeves I have is having that argument because it's not a permanent problem that your brace is weak and you're never going to get to a true failure point or close to it on an internally stabilized squat pattern before your legs fail. Not mm-hmm. true. You're going to get to a point of your strength where the rigidity of your central body is going to be way more than you're going to need before you hit failure with your legs. Guaranteed. You just need to spend the time being able to get there. Off soapbox. But I think it, I think it, it's it's worth discussing because it's one area where People say like, oh, you know, you don't want to squat and deadlift because it'll make your waist bigger. I'm like, (laughs) I can't really have that argument with anyone because I'm built like square. So whatever I say (laughs) isn't isn't going to hold any water, right? It's like, well, look at this guy's fucking waist. This guy's a waist with legs. Uh, (laughs) But I can say that 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 was purposefully built with a lot of direct ab work. It wasn't the squats and deadlifts that made my waist big. It was yeah. the weighted GHR sit-ups, hanging leg raises, heavy farmer walks, et cetera. But <clears throat> where, I, where I'm kind of going with this is like, and where I wanted the, the conversation to go from is we talked about the benefits of isolation, right? For someone yeah. who is an integrative athlete, to have the skill to isolate and build specific musculature, incredibly valuable. But on the other end, I put up a post about dips recently. You commented favorably and I tagged you specifically in it because I know we align in this. And I also tagged Ben and I had a really good conversation with Ben in my DMs about it. And credit to Ben. He's one of the only people yourself. There's, there's a couple others that I can engage in these intellectual conversations with where even if I disagree with you, we're still friends and it's just a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. I wish more conversations like that could take place. And I've been yeah. lucky enough to have them week after week on the podcast. So that's, that's been fantastic. But, yeah. you know, Ben's idea, Ben's frame of reference is if you're training muscles in isolation, you will be able to integrate them. My frame of reference is there needs to be movements that involve integration for you to develop the skill of integration. Yes. And Based solely on that, you can't say right or wrong because there's no evidence in either direction. I point to anecdotal evidence in that my lifters who stay the most injury-free and who move the best are the ones who can control their body moving through space. Yes. They can do dips. They can do push-ups. They can do different split squat variations, all with internal stability. Yep. So I'm wondering about your use of that overarching concept with bodybuilders because i'm sure one of the hardest things that you have uh, have to accomplish as a coach is how do i keep this guy healthy or this girl healthy as they get stronger yeah so 
that's one of the things that I don't compromise on easily with people because one of the specific challenges of that is with bodybuilders, they do think in that way, more so in Ben style. Mm-hmm. It's and I assume you're talking Giannis. Yeah. 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 Okay. Hi, Ben. If you're listening to this, been a while. Haven't talked to you in a while. Miss you. Um, but in more Ben style, it's isolation to get as much out of the individual muscle group that you can and be hyper specific to it. And that's assuming that if you get into a setup position that allows for that isolation to happen, then there's nothing else that needs to be worried about. I disagree with that premise in the same way that you do. Okay. Is if you don't have the ability to actually skillfully integrate motion or disintegrate motion the way that you're finding you're having to learn, mm-hmm. which is a skill in itself. For sure. If you don't know how to do one or the other well, you're going to have a hard time differentiating the two. Okay. So anyone that starts from one side or the other is going to have a hard time understanding what the opposite is. And so you're going to be fluctuating between the two at whatever skill level you may have already preset. So an example would be, because I'll, I'll make this an example of some of the things that Ben is more well-known for is very specific pulling angles, right? right. So like very specific, like cross body, cable, anything, like a lat high row, like across the body or something like that. Mm-hmm. So maybe very specific and it fits a goal, but for somebody that doesn't have their ability to know exactly how that needs to be set up or how it's supposed to feel or what exactly they're trying to find, and what they're trying to get out of it, then that could very easily become they're integrating multiple other patterns into that and other muscle groups that are going to be better suited to them because of their presets over time. And they're not going to know the wiser. So maybe for somebody like Ben that has a very deep understanding of this is what this muscle exactly does in this exact range of motion. It's this portion of the muscle group that's going to be doing the most because of the angle of force and how this is lining up and how I'm stabilized and what I'm bracing against and what mm-hmm. direction I am. And what orientation my body is relative to the cable, all of these things that are like somebody learning rocket science, if they've never thought about it before and trying to visualize how this all works while they're doing this movement, that seems to somebody like Ben or somebody like me in that same case, be like, oh, okay, well, this is exactly what happens and this is how you do it. That's kind of, that's the myopia of already having that skill and that knowledge embedded into your understanding and your application already. Most people don't have that knowledge integrated into themselves to the point where the application of it is flawless. It's always going to be painted with the preconceived biases. So one of those things, I'll use the specific example, mm-hmm. is that like a high angle cross body lat pull down that may be like phenomenal for lats to get into your length and position, right? Maybe perfect for it. However, what I would see most of the time is people don't understand that for you to actually get your lat to do its job, yes, you have to get your shoulder to elevate. But if your shoulder elevates, you also need it to depress. At what point of the range of motion should it be doing the most depression and where should it not be? How full of depression should it be by the by the end of the motion as well? What angle should, should your elbow actually be traveling in? What orientation should your grip be to allow your elbow to travel in a path that makes sense? Is your upper arm and your forearm moving in the same direction as the cable is and does that waver? At what portion of the range of motion are you retracting your shoulder as well? Because depression is going to beget the retraction as you start to go there. So like these portions, like these little things add up. And those are details of application that are already taken care of by having it already integrated into your understanding at that level. So if I'm looking at an individual, I'll take it away from the ethereal here. If I'm taking an individual that doesn't know how to specifically integrate skillfully or disintegrate skillfully, which isolation would be disintegrating skillfully. Integrating would be larger, more muscle groups doing the same action. Right. The aggregate. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to do that skillfully. Somebody that's trying to do this movement, what I would see is they're going to feel the length and portion. They're going to get into the setup. They're going to stretch, yeah. Setup may be fine, but what happens is just the elbow tracks straight outwards. And what did they do? Rear delt. They just got a, a nice big rear delt movement. Yeah. Great, but that's not the goal. But then if you're 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 thinking on it is that well <laughs> the set necessarily creates the environment to have this fit perfectly for the goal, that's just not true. There's an infinite number of possible movements that could happen 
and micro movements that make up every single portion of that range of motion. Because it's not just one singular joint system that's moving. There's many joint systems that are moving at different degrees and they move in relativity to one another. If you're not skillful enough with your application because you don't have the knowledge base already and you haven't applied that for long enough, then you're going to mess those things up. Yeah, and I I often wonder because the argument, let's say for a beginner, is from my school of thought, don't, don't let them touch machines. Have them learn how to move their bodies through space. And then once they understand how to move their bodies through space and stabilize proximally and mobilize distally, now you can put them on a machine and get them to feel the individual muscles. There's also a school of thought where get them on a machine, get them feeling the muscles they want to be feeling. And then once they have that kinesthetic awareness, now get them off the machine, see if they can integrate. And I think there's application in both directions. I do. I do not think there is a right or a wrong way. In fact, most programs that I find to be the the most effective most of the time, because we're not going to try and speak in absolutes, is one that has both, right? You're going to have them goblet squat and you're probably going to have them do leg extensions, right? There's going to be both ends of the spectrum. And, And that's where my philosophy really lies in that we need to have movements that teach us how to isolate. We also need to have movements that allow us to integrate. Because when we look at developing the athlete as a whole, even if it's a bodybuilding athlete focused solely on hypertrophy, in my opinion, the ability to integrate will keep that athlete healthier over the long term and will allow them to raise that glass ceiling of output that they could potentially develop if they're only training externally stabilized patterns. Yes completely agree. And yeah. I can, I can rewind back to the original question you asked me. Cause I yeah. find my way to, to walk away from your question somehow without answering them every oh, time. Dude, I'm, I love the, I love the tangents. Perfect. <laughs> I only think in tangents, um, but they always come back full circle. So what you were asking me is like what I'm actually going to do with those athletes, the mm-hmm. hypertrophy specific athletes and what I'm going to do with integrative versus isolated movements. And I, that's one of those things that I don't budge on, really. The only time I would budge on removing an internally stabilized movement is if there's a specific limitation that it creates somewhere else in the programming. If it's directly against our overall goal, it'll be removed. So an example, like I was saying earlier, is I would like to have somebody that has the energy capabilities and they have the structure to be able to utilize it, use stiff leg deadlifts, RDLs, barbell squat, stuff like that, if they're capable, that'd be the ideal. However, if it causes problems in other places, it's not a viable option. It goes against, it violates the primary goal. So if a back squat is something that somebody can't do, or even take it even a step closer, a Smith back squat, because that's a popular movement. People do those. Right. That pulls it out of the realm of like whether or not SBD is even useful for hypertrophy. We don't even have to go there for the moment. It's Smith squat. If you're getting your shoulders into this pin position and uh, behind you, and because of that, you're now going to have problems with everything you do with your shoulders because you just didn't have the mobility for it. That's an obvious conflict. We can't do that. If I'm going to put you onto a dumbbell press, even, even though dumbbells are probably the best tool that you're going to have use for, for pressing, Mm -hmm. if you can actually build a skill for them, if that directly causes someone an issue for whatever reason it may be, I'm going to step back on that and at very least work on integrating a skill in another way that's going to be less invasive to the overall goal so they can work their way there. But I don't budge on the fact that they need those types of things and at least work on the continuum towards getting to the place that they have control over their own bodies and on free moving implements in space. So your your essential position is we're going to look at where these bottlenecks are. And then we're going to regress the person to a point where they can perform something approximating that movement with relative, you know, solid skill. And then we're going to progress them up that runway to get to ultimately where we want to go. Yep. And I, that's, that makes perfect sense to me from, you know, a a programming standpoint. And we do it all the time with, with my power lifters and, 
even like even the bodybuilders that I coach, it's just finding movements that we can do safely and then progressing you to a point where, yeah, we have those integrated patterns in there. Um, I even think of my own training right now. Like I'm a very proficient squatter, very strong, but my knees can't handle squatting right now. So I don't squat. What do I do? I do something approximating a squat in my program. Well, a couple things. Um, that allow me to accumulate more total volume, still have high output with the goal of hopefully returning to squatting at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. And the best way you get there is by actually approximating the mechanics that are problematic within your squat. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. Trying to avoid it entirely, which is usually the response of people that go against the internally stabilized work so that you'll change what you're doing as a replacement to being pretty much the furthest thing away from approximating the same mechanics that caused the issue for you in the first place. So you remain deficient. Okay. I want to, yes. So one thing that I see very often, and I think is a cardinal sin when it comes to exercise prescription is say, for example, the individual has a really bad anterior pelvic tilt. And so they get a ton of knee pain with squatting. The coach will provide a movement that just allows them to more safely anterior tilt mm -hmm. and just remove the squatting. So they'll put them on like a hack squat where they can still arch their back and get into this extended position, but the hack squat won't hurt their knees because it's externally stabilized. Whereas, well, why don't we just try front squatting first <laughs> where we can't yeah. anteriorly tilt. And, and that to me, that to me is intuitive but to perhaps another coach who I see this often is, well, a front squat has more dorsiflexion and more knee flexion, therefore more knee pain. So it's that initial diagnosis of, no, the anterior tilt is causing the knee pain, not the knee travel. Yeah, it's, it's misdiagnosing based off of what they perceive as the source. Right, but then they choose a pattern that still allows the compensation to occur. So the person never actually works on those proper patterns and then they're never able to return back to the externally stabilized pattern or internally stabilized pattern sorry mm -hmm. and you know what that's that's the same phenomenon that i've talked about for like the last five years <laughs> <laughs> that it it took so many posts for people to understand is that and so many podcasts so many hours of my talking head shaking it's great though man <laughs> the more you put yeah. it out there the more people will listen yeah, because the, the principle is just that everyone, if you don't have the prior knowledge to understand the direction that you're actually ultimately leading yourself in, you're going to lead yourself into the same place everyone else does. And what you see unanimously, if you don't have good guidance is, and I'll say specifically with bodybuilders, this is part of the reason why bodybuilders go to all machines at some point. They can't do anything else. And then once they're on all machines, because they can't do anything else, they then have a only specific small number of machines they can use. Yep. And that continues to dwindle over time because of this lacking of the ability to integrate or disintegrate movement and do it skillfully and do it frequently enough that you're exposing yourself to ranges of motion that aren't actually touched upon within these machine patterns. Because the whole point of machines is to restrict the availability of ranges of motion to a specific one that gets the most output out of you for that pattern. So a good example here, and this ties back into exactly what we were saying just a minute ago, is that one of those things that I don't really budge on is having gait cycle type work in leg training. Yeah. Split squats, walking lunges, anything that's in a split squat pattern and having it free and self-stabilized is important because what we don't have in the, the closest thing on the continuum to it, that is a machine is a single leg leg press at the worst case, yeah. the worst case, put them on a single leg leg press. But even then, what do we have is you're setting yourself up and stabilizing yourself in a totally straight on path. Yes. What is going to be set in a totally straight on path. You don't really have access to the fact that when you actually go into gate cycle, you're intentionally going to be internally rotating your torso towards that internally rotating upper leg. That function of the torso relative to the working hip is necessary and it's integral to how human beings function. Mm -hmm. And not only that, 
we see as the way that the world has gone, especially since the C word times, people sit more than ever, 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 ever. And more people have jobs that are directly sitting on a computer like you and me. Oh, yeah. So tons of us and we have problems and we're like, ah, everything hurts. Why does everything hurt? Because we don't walk. We don't do gait cycle. We don't do the things that the human body is intended to do pretty much nonstop Mm -hmm. all hours of the day that we evolved to be able to do. And to get away from like the whole evolutionary biology thing, because that's a rabbit hole we don't need to touch. Just knowing that us getting into different ranges of motion frequently enough is going to allow us to get into those ranges of motion frequently enough. It begets itself, but then the opposite also begets itself. The less you touch those ranges of motion, the harder it's going to be for you to be in them. And if you try to load them significantly because you have, and I use this analogy for for the difference between these things, is that we have smaller muscle groups that act more towards just specifically stabilizing and locking out access or gaining access to ranges of motion, specifically in rotation. And then we have large muscle groups that will move joints in large paths with a lot of force. And the difference between those two is stark. But what we end up doing, especially as we continue down this continuum of not actually doing anything within these differing ranges of motion, anytime we expose ourselves to those ranges of motion, those smaller muscle groups that act like keys to open this door of easy movement, they're ineffective. They're blunted. They can't open the door for you. So instead, they lock things down. And what do you do instead? Use the big jackhammer that you have as the big muscle that moves everything with a lot of force. And it will start to do even more work to try and give you the power you want in that range of motion that's currently been locked out of access. And then we wonder why we have pain. Yep. We have pain and discomfort and we don't line up. And oh, my, I can't do split squats because my lower back hurts and my knee hurts and my hip hurts. It's like, well, yeah. Have you only done leg extensions and leg press for the last five years and you haven't walked more than 3,000 steps unless you were in prep for the last 10 years? Well, duh, because you haven't taught yourself how to use any of this. It's like being a a child learning to walk for the first time and then you only learn to walk by sitting in one of those like bouncy chairs that, that has your legs sitting out of the bottom and you just take one step forward every time. You don't have to stabilize yourself. It's like sitting on a baby treadmill. You don't do nothing. You know what I'm talking about? I'm I'm wondering at what point those things get brought back in for adults. <laughs> at some point soon, we're going to yeah. be living in wall in Wally is what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I okay. So we've both gotten on our soapbox about internally stabilized movements being extremely beneficial. I'm going to flip flip the argument on its head. Yeah. Because this is something that I've been taking advantage of quite a bit lately. Is the ability for us to leverage machines to put us in positions that are perhaps outside of our internally stabilized ability to develop skill and motor control within those ranges. Mm-hmm. An example would be, actually the, probably the easiest example would be the leg extension. So for someone with knee pain, perhaps emanating from very tight hips, putting someone in a leg extension that forces a deep knee flexion, maybe so like, well, at at our gym, we only have the hammer strength leg extension. So the range is quite short. So I'll put a yoga mat in between my shins and the pad to increase the knee flexion. That allows me to safely access this range of motion that I could not get into in an internally stabilized movement without pain. And the machine actually allows me to train that position under control to a point where now I have increased tolerance in knee flexion and have decreased knee pain in my other movements. And I think that is something that can be incredibly valuable when we talk about more so the strength athlete or even that that bodybuilder who has over time decreased their ranges because of how large they've become. That's something that I don't think gets discussed enough. And working with my coach, Danny LaMartina, has really pointed out to me that doing stuff like very, very deep pendulum squats with slow tempo, isometrics that force me to actually 
control my body in that deep hip flexion and knee flexion range that there's no way for me to get into with a barbell. Yep. Now my hip function is improving. Now my knee health is improving. So is that something that you do leverage with all of your clients and on the machines? Absolutely. And yeah. this, this actually works perfectly as a hand in hand argument Yeah. because why do people run down the continuum towards machines anyways? They're a, safe, range. they're a safe haven. Well, they're a safe haven for specific ranges of motion, right? Right. Because they're a safe haven for specific ranges of motion. If you already don't have good access to it in free internally stabilized movements, you'll have possible access there. So you leveraging the fact that you can be there and you can get more excessive ranges of motion where you may not have control otherwise, that is of specific utility. You can't get control over something you don't have access to yet. If you're giving assistance into your access, you can then leverage that to then gain control. So as so long as your directionality is not further towards only using it as a safe haven, you're using it as an opportunity right? then go backwards again so that you can use them both as equally utilizable tools. That's where the positive is. You could use any tool negatively. And the negative use of a machine is then to use it as the safe haven where you can only do what you're doing in that context. But if you use it as an opportunity, that will gain you the ability to go and do that elsewhere and cross apply that specific benefit you get from that machine and that position it allows you to be in to other machines that are similar to it that have a different function and then to other movements that are more free that you'll have to do on your own. So the continuum runs both directions and you yes. can utilize both of them that way. And those machines, like you said, with the pendulum, that's one of those things that I specifically use for a lot of people in the hack. This makes for a really good example because one of the things that I see most often is programming around people with knee pain. Mm -hmm. Almost everyone in their dog has knee pain. And if we didn't give them such bad kibble, it probably wouldn't be a problem, but that's an aside. Um, oh, dropped it. Let's see. I have a little fidget here because I'm ADHD and I have to do that. <laughs> um, but seeing as I have to program around a lot of people that have like knee pain and little hip issues and a lot of them at the same time, almost every time, knee issues, they have lower legs that don't rotate. They have problems at their foot. They don't have control over it muscularly whatsoever. They also, as an extension of that, have slight hip pain, at least a slight tilt in one direction and incompetent lower back pain. That almost happens in pairings every single time. Oh, without question. Yes. Yep. So since that happens almost every single time and people have issues that branch from, okay, I can't do, cause I'll see this all the time with like initial intake forms and initial consultations. I can't do squats. So, okay, well, what does that mean? I can't do barbell squats. So, okay, why? So I have knee, hip, and lower back pain, and I don't get dorsiflexion enough for me to get to the bottom. So, okay, heard that before. Um, so, can you do it with heel wedges, or can you do it with any of these other implements? Can you do it with a safety bar? Can you do? No, th those all those all hurt. So, okay, and you still can't get range of motion, right? It's like, yeah, right. Okay, all right. Can you do a hack? Yeah, but that causes pain too. So, okay. Can you do it on a pendulum? Yeah, but that hurts even worse. Can you do a leg press? Oh yeah, leg press is fine. Hmm. What does that tell me? Yeah, that tells shit, me that- Shit range on the leg press. <laughs> well, yeah, yes. Typically, yes. They have horrible range on the leg press and that's how they get away with it. But the biggest thing that that tells me is that they just don't have an understanding of how it is that their body was supposed to move in the first place. And that was where the progenitor was. And as they move down that continuum, they've moved themselves past option to option to option to option, where each one of them, as of one point, the next option down the continuum towards internal stabilization in that same like pattern mm -hmm. had viability. But as they continued through it and they scaled their output levels, they couldn't branch off into the actual output they could properly tolerate because their skill level never broke past a point right. because they had a limitation they never conquered before it. So they continued moving and continued moving, continued moving. And each one of these machine iterations up until the leg press, the leg press is the first one that has a divergence here. Each one of those iterations from like a back squat to a front squat to a safety bar squat 
to possibly a Smith variation of either of those. Mm-hmm. And then you move into a hack and a pendulum down that continuum. Those are all getting into more and more extreme ranges of motion. The leg press is the first one that has a divergence away from that continuum. Right. Right. So going down that direction, they continue to have more and more and bigger problems that are harder to come back from because they got into more extreme ranges of motion without conquering the initial thing that caused pain with the least amount of active range that they needed available for them to control, which was the back. And so, like we were saying with this continuum moving back and forth, both directions, they went towards their safe haven every step of the way. And every time they went towards the safe haven, they found some safety, but that came at the cost of them losing that safe haven to have to move to the next one into the next one into the next one. If you were to look at the issue that they're actually dealing with and conquer that to start with by moving them to the closest safe haven, like you said earlier, moving away from the back squat to the front squat for the anterior tilt issue. You move them away into that one, and then you use that as the actual lever that you're going to use to get them able to come back to it. Absolutely. That's an effective jump. But if it's okay, that caused pain, that caused pain, that caused pain, you never get anywhere. And as you get more extreme and ranges of motion, you don't necessarily have any more ability to fix a problem. You having the ability to fix a problem with your knees, the knee pain and knee health on the pendulum by doing it the way you're doing it is because of the way you're approaching it, which is also a missing link because that missing link never gets touched. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the idea of range of motion because one thing that I'm I'm finding with a lot of my clients, even myself included within my own training, is extending ranges of motion can be beneficial, but only if those ranges of motion are coming from where you want them to come from. Exactly. And w- one thing that I see very often, especially in uh, let's well, let's just stick with the the squatting variations for now is okay, you're getting incredible range deep, deep, deep on your hack squat, but your heels are lifting up, your low back is rounding, especially on that arsenal hack where the back pad stops early. You're you're rounding lower back, you're getting up onto your toes. Yeah, yeah, but my range is awesome. It's like, okay, but what's your actual active range of motion? The range you have control over before you dump into your low back and your toes. Oh, well, I have to move my feet about three inches up and maybe a little bit wider. Like, okay, cool. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Let's get really good there. And then let's progress down. The other thing that I find, find incredibly beneficial is introducing tempos and isometrics. So yes. slowing down the, the eccentric tempo, introducing isometrics in the length and position. Those to me are the number one ways to effectively nerf output, number one. And yes. force you to actually do what you need to do in those ranges, which for me, if I'm just burying hack squats, yeah, I'll load 10 plates aside. Cool. Mm-hmm. But if I four second eccentric, three second active pauses in the bottom, well, now I'm using four and a half or five. Yep. Which means less, less tension on my knee joint which means I can focus on the way my hips are moving, which means I can focus on where my foot pressure is. And I think that gets ignored, whether it be for ego or ignorance, mm-hmm. both of which equally negligent. Um, and looking at, okay, well, so for you, it's let's take them down the closest iteration of that movement that we can get them into. For me, it doesn't even necessarily need to be pain-free it just needs to be pain tolerable. Yep. Because your pain will decrease as your skill increases. Yes. I give a scale to people when I move them across an iteration is that if it passes a four out of 10, that's where we call it. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Mine is if it goes up by two out of 10. So if you walk in with a four and you leave it a six, that's probably mm-hmm. pushed too hard. Fair enough. That's good. I like that. I might steal that. Well, I'm just never not in pain. So I like it's more like an RPP, like rate of perceived pain rather than rate of perceived exertion. 
Right. I actually remember a funny story. The first time I ever had a quad pump that didn't involve knee pain. And we're talking, I've been training now for 18 years. And it wasn't until a year ago when I had a quad pump without knee pain. Dude, (laughs) that's sad. (laughs) Well, it's because I've only ever been like the, the gym that I was training at for the majority of my powerlifting career. We had bars, plates, one cable stack and dumbbells. That's how I trained. So my knees hurt. Fuck it. We're squatting. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I I can only talk so much. I've done the same thing to myself. So. Well, it's like, it's like, well, Paul, why don't you squat anymore? It's like, well, I need to build up my legs and I don't need a bigger ass. So I don't squat. <laughs> but the wife wouldn't mind but (laughs) i mean that's all she's worried about too with wellness (laughs) yeah although she's competing in powerlifting this weekend nice she's doing a meet yeah she should if all goes well which i think it will uh she should be in the top five or six all time in canada that would be amazing man it'd be pretty cool yeah so shout out to live yeah shout out live yeah Maybe just cut this out so you can put an appreciation up. <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, so I dude, I really like these, these are the type of conversations. Like I know we agreed on 99.99% of things, but even if we didn't, you know, I just have to say again, the ability to have these intellectual conversations where we're going to be friends at the end, even if we did disagree. And I'm sure if we were to talk long enough, there'd be plenty that we do disagree on or things that we do differently, maybe. Uh, but I think that more so has to do with the populations in which we're exposed to. Um, yeah. But I do think having these conversations in the public forum is incredibly valuable uh, to share different perspectives. And I, I truly just want to create a space with this podcast and with Coach's Corner um, where we can have open discourse about information without calling into question the individual. Right? right. It's like, you're stupid. It's like, well, I'm not stupid. I just, believe different things than you, which is okay. Yeah. Um, and I did want to put, uh, you know, a teaser out there. Nick and I are going to be working together on a, on a, on a course for coaches corner university. We've already started putting the outline together and timeline TBD, but it's definitely yeah. going to pair well with the exercise library, which is very, very cool. Uh, and give you guys a whole toolbox of tools that you could use that fits into the entire framework of this conversation. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, Nick, what else do you have going on? So you got the exercise library, you're partnering, partnering with other coaches and other companies to promote that to their clients. Um, mm-hmm. Anything new you're doing with, with your athletes and if someone wants to work with you. Yeah, absolutely. So my biggest thing with my own coaching right now is I'm doing a whole lot of specific training coaching in tandem with other coaches So I will make a point to specifically say that as if there's athletes out there with coaches that don't pay as much attention to their training, but you would like to have that specific eye. And of course you pass it by your own coach and they are totally happy with having a second eye to take care of the thing that they can't pay as much attention to. I'm there. That's, that's what I've been doing for the last two years. Really. It's been a, a much bigger portion of what I do. And I leverage that as specifically it's my major wheelhouse and it's what I enjoy. So collaborative coaching has been a big thing. And you still prep clients as well too, right? Like you do in person as well, for sure. Oh yeah. I have a full roster of my own plus everyone else's that I'm I'm tandem with. Yeah. So anyone wants any kind of coaching services from me, I typically only work with hypertrophy related and bodybuilding athletes, but all all are are welcome within team Gloth so long as we align. So if that's... If that's something you're interested in, you can find all my information on teamgloff.com. And you can also find out anything you need to know pretty much on my Instagram page. All of my links are within the the bio as well. So you can go find anything you want from me there. Also, I'm doing a two seminar series this fall. Yeah. So I've got one at the end of this month. It's the last weekend of September at Revive. Okay. If anyone wants details on that, that is the mind to muscle seminar that'll be held there. And then there will be another one planning for November. I think the second week of November at MI 40. So, yeah. So that is the plan as of right now, anyone that wants more details to that, I have that 
posted directly on my Instagram page. So you can see the flyer there and the details and the checkout link to go and get your tickets. If you'd like to be there, that is also in my bio. Amazing. Then, yeah. I believe that's, that's it for this sector of business. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you giving your time. It's been a pleasure as always to chat with you and uh, really excited to collaborate on some things in the future. And guys, please make sure to check out Nick, go read his lengthy diatribes about everything and <laughs> be sure to check out the sponsors of the podcast. We have master athletic performance at, master athletic performance on instagram or www.masterathletic.com coaches corner university or at coaches corner u no it's at coaches corner university i should probably know that eh? or www.coachescorneru.com we also have discount codes for bacon and barbells paul 10 grindstone grindstone cream of rice po need and first attachment nutrition Paul 10. And if you need anything else, me on Instagram at Paul O'Need. Thank you again, Nick. Hope you guys have a great day. Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell. And we'll talk to you soon.